Thank you, Jesse, for taking requests. I emailed him that song this last week and asked him, can we sing that? Um, I don't know if you every year try to add to your Christmas music collection, but uh, if you're looking for albums that are worshipful, new hymns written for Christmas, uh, Sovereign Grace had a great one last year. The album is called Prepare Him Room. We sang that song in here too, and that one was from that. Uh, I just recommend it. It's on the uh, on the playlist in our house a lot this last month, but God made low to raise us up. I love that line, God made low. Um, as we start, I wanted to tell two quick stories by way of uh, illustration. Hopefully we'll see how they sort of connect. Let's see here, technology. Let's see if this will open back up for me. Uh, the first one uh, was this, we're about to give gifts. It's Christmas on uh, Friday. How many people have not done any shopping yet? You're about to get on Amazon this week and make sure your mom gets something with a typed out card, so personal. Um, <laughs> Uh, how many of you get your, your Christmas shopping done like super in advance? You already had it for months. And any, any of you crazy people in this room? Okay, good. So I'm, I'm in good company. I still have to get something for my mom. Uh, well, Christmas gifts. Uh, when I was 13, uh, my Uncle Woody uh, gave me an album for Christmas, an album, a real album on vinyl, the big kind like this with the paper that you pull out of the inside and with the needle uh, and everything. And uh, my Uncle Woody uh, w- is 12 years older than me, so he was kind of like my big brother growing up. He was my mom's baby uh, brother, and so and he lived uh, nearby, and so he thought it was his duty as I was uh, coming of age, coming into adolescent years, to make sure that I wasn't a nerd um, and that I didn't listen to dumb music and I didn't dress you know, with dorky clothes. And so he would often give me gifts to try to elevate my coolness or Early on. So when I was 13, he gave me this album for Christmas with hopes that it would set me on a trajectory of listening to good rock and pop music, you know, stuff that was trend-setting and, and worth listening to. And he gave me this album when I was 13, The Talking Heads, Speaking in Tongues. Anyone know who The Talking Heads are? Okay, the rest of you are either way younger than that or older than that, and, and I'm in this 80s music window. But anyway, so um, regardless of whether or not you think the Talking Heads are worth listening to, he gave me this. Talking Heads, and this album in particular, was a groundbreaking album. David Byrne, the lead singer, and they were sort of the, the innovators or the one of the first bands in this genre called New Wave Music, and, and it was just really interesting, creative, and digital. And, and this album had Burning Down the House on it, which was their first number one hit uh, in 1989. Rolling Stone magazine did this huge article on the top 100 albums of the 80s, and this was right there in the middle, right around 50 or so. And and so my uncle Woody was an early adopter. He, he knew he had his finger on the pulse of I think you know what was cool, and so he gave me this album, and I looked at it, and I never heard of them. Didn't know one song. The album cover's not very interesting. It's kind of weird pieces of furniture laying on their side. And I just thought, thank you. And he gave it to me. And, and the next week, I took it down to Tower Records in Brea. And I exchanged it for, for this album right here. <laughs> I'm not proud of this. He was very disappointed when he found out. Um, and not just the single, like now you would just pay $1.29 and make that mistake. No, I bought the whole album, all the songs. Can anyone name another song on the Ghostbusters soundtrack? Didn't think so. Can anyone name another hit by Ray Parker Jr.? 
No, <laughs> not in this room, right. Yeah, exactly, right. Uh, I, my uncle was so disappointed. Um, I had no idea, now I do. I got to high school and I actually went and I bought the cassette tape of it and I started listening. I'm like, oh, this is really good. I have it now on iTunes. I listened to it this last week and was reminded what an amazing album it was, Talking Heads, I mean. Um, um, but, but I had no idea the musical genius I was sort of holding in my hands and I traded in for this sort of garbage, bubblegummy, you know, commercial commercial sellout, you know, soundtrack song, who you gonna call? Ghostbusters. Um, all right, that's story number one. Um, maybe a little bit more to the point. Maybe you remember this story from 2008. There was a YouTube video that got uh, shown around. Here's a little screen capture from it. Uh, this is the Washington DC Metro, one of their Metro train stations. And this guy down on the, on the left over here, you see kind of blurry uh, security camera with a violin. He set up for 45 minutes at one of the Metro entrances during morning rush hour uh, with his violin case on the ground. And for 45 minutes, he played six Bach pieces and they took video. Um, they, it was Washington Post, did this little social experiment. And, uh, and if you watch the video, I don't watch the whole thing, but you can watch highlights. And as you imagine, it's rush hour and people just constantly going back and forth and not even giving him the time of day while he's playing. Uh, every once in a while, like a kid would stop and listen and, kid, and the parents would just sort of tug him along. And, and after 45 minutes, he made $32 in tips. Uh, mostly changed, people kind of threw uh, and went on the way. And when he was done, he just, packed it up and no one clapped and no one noticed and he just left. Um, here's another picture of him a little closer. He's just kind of looks like just street musician. Well, this guy's name is Joshua Bell and he's one of the finest violinists in the world. He's a concert mu a musician and the violin that he's playing is a Stradivarius violin that was made in 1713. It was really, and he spent just under $4 million I don't even have a category for an instrument that small that cost, that, no joke, he had another Stradivarius that was like two million and he traded up and he bought that violin that he was playing. Two nights before this, this little video experiment, he sold out this performing arts uh, theater in Boston at a hundred bucks a seat. Here's a picture of him doing his thing. And uh, I mean, he's just this world-class musician playing Bach like probably no one in that station had ever heard Bach played live. And they're just blowing past him. And, and uh, in the article about this, uh, the Washington Post said, you find it here. He said, uh, they said the question uh, behind their experiment was in a commonplace environment at an inappropriate hour, do we perceive beauty? Do we stop and appreciate it um, when the context is not what we would expect? Um, even though this music was exquisite, what they saw was most people totally missed it and just blew past making assumptions that this was just some other street musician and they didn't have time for that. Well, last week's verses in John 1, I want us to look back at John 1, 10 and 11. Get a running start at our verses this morning. The point of both these stories has to do with failing to recognize beauty when we see it, glory when we see it. You see, in John 1, he gets to the point, verse 10, where he says, He, the Word, the Word who was God and with God and who created all things, who's always existed and in whom is life and the light of men. This guy, this Word, verse 10, He was in the world... And the world was made through him, and yet the world didn't know him. He came to those who were his own, and his own people 
didn't receive him. Our creator showed up bodily on earth, teaching, talking, healing, interacting with the people he created and they either fail to recognize him or maybe even many who recognize something extraordinary or different about him. He talks like no one else I've ever heard talks or teaches and he does things I've never seen. Even many of them, John says, didn't receive him. They still rejected him. Even seeing something of the uniqueness and the extraordinary nature of Jesus Most of them blew right past. The creator showed up in our metro station and by and large, we didn't even know him, John says. But verse 12, John says, not everyone walked right past him. Some recognize, he says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And John talked about this a little bit last night. What made the difference? There's all these people not knowing, not recognizing, or maybe seeing something and yet refusing to receive him and rejecting him. And then there's some who receive him and they believe in Jesus' name and God gives them the right to become children of God. Well, John says in, our, in, in the two verses we're gonna look at today, um, something about what was the difference For those who received him, John was one of them. And here's what he says as one of them. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. And not just some sort of low level, you know, reflective glory, a really good, really spiritual, really holy man or prophet. No, he says, we've seen his glory, glory uh, as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That's what was behind John's and many others believing in Jesus' name and receiving him was they saw glory in Jesus that was none other than God's himself. They saw his glory, glory from the Father. They recognized that God was in their midst. Now, pause for a minute. I want to take us over to 2 Corinthians 4 for a minute. Travis, if you put that up. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 is talking about something uh, very similar to John. He's talking about um, those who refuse to believe and reject Jesus as Lord and those who do. And in verse 4, he says, here's the problem. Here's what's going on for every person who does not know and uh, does not receive Jesus. He says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. That means the light of the good news of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, in other words, in Christ is is the very image of God. When people saw Jesus and heard Jesus, they saw and heard God himself. And the good news that Jesus was bringing was like light, an invitation that through me, you can be reconciled to God and have eternal life. You can have life restored with the Father. And the problem was the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing that glory in Jesus. So all these people, we see Jesus, many people see Jesus, don't see God's glory. They see a man. Maybe a really good man, but they don't see the glory of God in that face of Jesus Christ. But then two verses later, Paul says, here's what happens for every person that goes from unbeliever to believer. This miracle happens for everyone. If you have believed in Jesus' name and received him as Savior and Lord, this has happened to you at some point. Paul says, the same God 
who said, let light shine out of darkness. The same God at creation who there was nothing, blackness and void, and he spoke, let there be light and light appeared. That same God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I believe that God in his sovereign grace, this is a miracle that happens we call it new birth. It's what John, John talks, Jesus talks about in John 3 with Nicodemus. Unless someone is born a second time and Nicodemus says, what? How does that possibly happen? It says, Jesus says, you know what? It's, it's like the wind. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going to. It's, it's a work of the spirit, a, a bringing to life. We sang about it in that Charles Wesley hymn, that, sec, that third verse, long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye, God's eye, diffused a quickening ray. That's kind of flowery language to say, God uh, brought, shone forth a, a light that brings life, quickening, shown a sort of life that calls people out of deadness, spiritual deadness into light. And I woke, it says, the dungeon flamed with light and my chains fell off, my eyes could see. I rose, I went forth and I followed thee, both now and to eternity, all thanks and praise to God, uh, this God of love. This is this miracle I think Paul is talking about here that God says into, the, into a dark, spiritually blind heart, uh, let there be light. And it's the capacity to see and recognize in Jesus, in this man, this humble man, touching lepers and, and healing demoniacs and, 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 and teaching until he's exhausted and, and hanging on a cross. That's the glory of God. This, this response of believing and receiving is a recognition and a seeing that's glory in Jesus. But it's not just a seeing it, like John said last night. Having seen it, it's also a, a, a receiving of it. Uh, another pastor, John Piper, likes to say, seeing and savoring Christ. It's not just recognizing, but having recognized who Christ is and the beauty and the glory that's there to want him to want to follow him, want to trust him, want to yield your life to him. In John 6, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever believes in me shall never hunger. So there's a response, believing in me and you'll never hunger. And then he says a parallel statement. He says, he who comes to me shall never thirst. He's not talking about two separate things. They're together. This response is both he who believes in me, who recognizes who I am, that this is the glory of God here that they're seeing, but also who then comes to me to satisfy them as bread of life, as water of life, who sees, believes, and then comes to be satisfied. He says, um, that's the one who will never hunger and thirst. So here's the question for this morning. All this has been intro here, and I want to get to our two points, but they both are really an answer to this, uh, is the glory of God. Do you recognize the glory of God in the face of Christ? Because there's aspects of, of the way that God's glory is seen in Christ that are unexpected and are humble and lowly and contrary to things that our world values and says is praiseworthy and admirable do you recognize the glory of God in the face of Christ? And seeing it then, do, do you actually receive it? Do, do you yield to him? Two glorious things about God that have been revealed in Jesus in verse 14. Two things, God's willingness to get low, 
And secondly, his eagerness to be near us. All this is just in verse 14 here in these two phrases. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. John says we've seen his glory. In the word becoming flesh and and dwelling among us, we've seen something of the glory of God in that. There's something glorious there. And I want to make sure that we recognize it. So let's start with number one. God's willingness to get low is part of his glory. God's willingness to humble himself. God's willingness to put himself in the role of servant to his creation. This is part of his glory. His willingness to set aside privileges that he alone is due as creator, author of life, sovereign Lord over the upholder of everything that exists, all that privilege that is rightfully his, God in Christ is willing to set aside and do without so that we might get privileges that we are not due, that we've squandered any right to. God's willingness to condescend, to to get down low, descend down to be with us. One of the two words I want us to, to leave here thinking about is condescend, that God condescends. Now, we got to get the right sense of that word, not misunderstand, because condescend, there's an ugly condescending, right? And there's a beautiful condescending. We all know ugly condescension when we're on the receiving end of it, right? Has anyone ever patronized you? They've talked down to you and they assumed that they were smarter than you or more, you know, socially aware than you, whatever. And they talked to you or they treated you in a manner that made you feel little, When we're condescended to like that, that's actually, that's not praiseworthy at all. That's ugly. It actually, while it looks maybe like it's being humble, getting down on your level so that I can communicate, it's actually a way of showing, just demonstrating that I see myself as superior to you, right? If I condescend to you, it's a self-exalting sort of behavior and attitude, and we find it repulsive. We hate when people act like that. People hate when we act that way. But there's a condescension that's beautiful, a a genuine stepping down and humbling oneself uh, to be with another that when we see it or see uh, reflections of it or glimpses of it, we know that's beautiful. This picture a couple weeks ago got circulated all over the the interwebs on social media, Facebook, and I don't know if you saw it, maybe someone posted it on your wall or liked it and you saw it, but this is a mall Santa in North Carolina and that little boy, Braden, who was six um, with autism, had come up in the line with his parents and he was obviously terrified of this interaction. His parents just wanted him to have a Santa picture and have a little of this experience and the kid wouldn't get near and apparently this Santa just saw it going down and he got down with his creaky arthritic knees off his velvet throne and he he just lays down in this sweaty outfit, right? All the way down on his stomach with a snow globe and this little stuff, two stuffed bears. And you see Braden's holding one of them now. And you can see the look on Braden's face that he's getting drawn in and his fear defenses are going down. He's feeling comfortable. And you can see it on the Santa's face. It doesn't look like he's posturing for a photo op or anything. There's the reason that got shared all over social media and people click like on that picture, I think, The reason I like that picture is something, I just look at that and I say, that's beautiful, right? 
But now, even this isn't true condescension. This is a, a beautiful picture, I think, of, of humbling oneself, not feeling so self-important that you can't get down right on this kid's level to help him. But actually, this isn't true condescension because true condescension is the voluntary descent from one's rank or dignity in relation to an inferior. Real condensation, con I'm gonna say this a few times all week because I've been thinking about this, I've said condensation. So if I say it, just <laughs> no, I mean condescension. So, um, but true condescension really is, it's someone who is legitimately of a superior rank, stepping down from that level of dignity or rank to the level of an inferior. And truth be told, that guy's not more important than that little boy, right? I mean, we don't know what that guy's done. He probably has more to repent of in his life than that boy does, right? So in some ways, that little kid might be better than him, right? Or maybe more, more morally pure. But, but this, this guy right here, he, he's not better than this kid. His, his uh, lack of autism doesn't make him better than this little boy with his disability. No. In fact, if the opposite happened, if this little kid came up and the parents were sort of looking and the guy was sitting there on his throne and wasn't willing to do anything and just thought, I'm not going to get down off my See, I don't, they don't pay me enough for this. We'd despise that, wouldn't we? We'd think, who do you think you are? You think you're better than him? You're not better than him. In some ways, you don't, you don't, you know, if the guy acted like that, you don't, you don't even deserve to, to, for that kid to, to know you, right? But he didn't. Now, I'm not trying to take away from this. This is, I think, a beautiful act of, of, of humbling oneself um, in love, right? But true condescension is God the Word, God the Son, who is absolutely above us in rank, in every way, steps down and becomes one of his creation. That is condescension. Look at verse 15. That's this parenthetical comment that John makes about John the Baptist and what John the Baptist acknowledged about Jesus. He said, John bore witness about him and cried out, this, this man Jesus, is he of whom I said, he who comes after me, who was born nine months later than me, actually ranks before me or above me. He actually is my superior because he was before me, even though he was born physically after me, he has always existed. This isn't just a guy. He has existed. He was before me. And from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. But that's next week. I'm not going to take anything from Scott's verses there. But Jesus does rank above us. He is preeminent. And he humbles himself. He truly condescends the Holy One actually becomes one of us, like our, us, sinners who need saving. So when John says the word became flesh, what he's pointing to is the, the condescension of Jesus, saying the word became flesh. Talk about voluntary descent from your rank to have relationship with an inferior. God made low to raise us up. And by becoming flesh, what John means is he became human. He didn't just have the appearance of being a man. It wasn't just sort of a trick. It wasn't just sort of a, you know, like, you know, sometimes angels sort of appearing, you know, as looking like a man, but they're a spiritual being. No, it's not like that. He's saying, John is saying that the word actually became flesh. Philippians 2 
that we read some of this morning, Paul says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he'd emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Two things I want to point out about that. One was just a, just a I think a, f- a fresh thought this week for me. Maybe it wasn't for you, but you know, I think about, he didn't count that something to be grasped, his status and privilege. And I, I think I've always thought of the, the humble, uh, the God hum, uh, humbling himself and thought, man, that must have been really hard for God. How hard must it be for God, the creator, to humble himself like that? But what struck me this last week is I, th- I think I think that because it's really hard for me to humble myself, right? Stop and think of the reasons why it's hard to humble yourself before someone Usually, it's because of a lack in you, an insecurity in you or me, right? Usually when I'm not willing to humble myself, there's something I'm holding on to or grasping tightly, right? I don't want to be perceived. If it's to humble myself to forgive someone who's hurt me, I don't want to offer forgiveness maybe and humble myself because that might actually admit to them that maybe they were right in something too. And I don't want to give up that ground of being right, you know? There's all kinds of ways that we, we refuse to humble ourselves. I think, because um, we got something to prove or we got something to maintain that we don't want to give because humbling involves sort of um, a vulnerability. But you know what? God has nothing to prove to us. He's not up there insecure. Boy, I really hope I don't blow this thing with these people down there. And God is perfectly secure. He has nothing to lose. He has nothing to prove. And God actually would find it the easiest. It's in his very nature as gracious, compassionate, benevolent, giving, self-sufficient, not needy God to humble himself. It's not difficult for God, I don't think, to humble himself. It's actually in his very nature. That's why it's part of his glory. That, that, that the eternally existing God, the uncreated one, is actually like this in his nature, giving, willing to, to set aside glory and privilege, in, in a sense, to, to save those who've, who've forfeited it. And he did it by, by becoming human. That was the getting low uh, that Jesus experienced. Um, he emptied himself, Paul says, Don't want to misunderstand that. He didn't empty himself by temporarily giving up some of his divine attributes or powers. He didn't sort of leave some of his divine powers in a little basket at heaven, and then he went down to earth. And then when he got back there, he sort of took those back up as his his powers again. Paul doesn't say anything of him emptying attributes, himself of attributes. He actually really empties himself of status and privilege, right? He says, emptied himself by taking. He didn't give anything up. He took something on that was actually an emptying. He took on the flesh and, and being born in the likeness of men and the role of a servant was actually an emptying of himself and emptying himself of, of, of status and privilege. He remained fully God as he took on human flesh, fully man, fully God famous old sentence about this idea from the fourth century, Gregory of Nazianzus. He was an early church father and, and was trying to explain what happens here at the incarnation. He said, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. 
didn't lose anything, but God, in the Son, forever took on a human body, will, um, a soul, mind, and will forever have that. He didn't go back into heaven and take that off. Whew, man, that was, you know, a bummer. He will forever be the God-man into eternity. When we see him one day, he will be God. The word became flesh. He will always be this. It's amazing. And in doing this, he got low. And I want us to just think about sort of in, in descending levels, tiers, how low God was willing to get. First of all, Paul says he was willing to be born and grow like us and submit himself to the development process that we go through as human beings in order to be fully human. Jesus was born and grew. And that was a humbling of, of God. Think about it. As an adult... Would you, how, how much would you like to go back and do newborn stage all over again? Maybe some of you actually are really stressed at work and you think that sounds wonderful. I don't have any responsibilities. Everyone just, just feeds me and whatever I need, I just, ah, and then it's just there. But no, the indignities and the weakness of being a newborn, um, you know, you can't even hold your own head up and you got that gummy spot on the top of your head that you got to be careful not to push because your skull's not formed over it yet, right? You know, and... and, and you don't want to go back to that. The word was born, was a newborn. But he was lower than that. He, he, he grew up. He was, he was a two-year-old. He went through every stage that we grow through. Can you imagine going back to two-year-old status? Oh, the frustration of that. The lack of coordination of that, you know, my two-year-old Elijah every day multiple times is just like barreling around and he can't control all his limbs and he's knocking into corners of coffee tables and corners of walls and getting goose eggs and skin in his knees and just the constant, he's, he has to learn how to form words and say them correctly and we find it so cute when two-year-olds don't say them properly and we sort of get sad when they stop saying things like Elijah right now, he calls bicycles bicolos. So we'll go for a bike ride. Bikealo, bikealo, bikealo. He calls horses horkies, you know? And we go, oh, that's just so cute. Don't stop saying it like that. But I mean, just think, and what? And he calls buses butts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Levi thinks that's hilarious. But, but, but as we drive around. But, but the word was a two-year-old at a point and had to learn vocabulary and probably said words like bikealo, but just in Aramaic, whatever, you know, the version of that was, he developed it, right? The gospel says he grew in wisdom and in stature. He grew like we did. He, the, the, the word subjected himself to that, which is amazing. But he gets lower than that. He went through puberty. Yeah. Raise your hand if you'd like to go back as an adult and just do puberty all over again. Anybody? I don't even like saying that word, let alone doing it. Junior high was like, in some ways, my worst years, as probably many of you, but oh, the acne and the BO and the emotional, you know, turmoil inside and the hormones and, and growing pains and, and the awkwardness, right, of, of you, you sort of, you lose your cute face, but you're not quite at your grown up distinguished face. You're just in that awkward, you know, middle. My son Levi's eight, nine, and he's just kind of growing out of that baby face where he's just getting, stretching out and getting more of his grown up face. And the other day he was looking at Elijah and, and he's like, I just want to be cute. <laughs> like he already recognizes he's sliding into the like awkward teen years. And he's like, I just want to hold on, you know, but puberty, Jesus went through puberty and adolescence and he was a tween. And as a tween, you know, not quite even a teenager yet, 
The word, the sovereign Lord of the universe did what his mom told him to do, submitted himself in obedience to human parents. But he got even lower than this. We might think, well, that was the lowest. He became a baby and then it just started going up from there. But no, Philippians 2 makes it sound like that's just the beginning. He was born, but then he lived as an adult in a fallen world and was tempted and tried and suffered and lost loved ones and, and, and saw firsthand experience the fallout of sin and violence and ugliness in our world and was on the receiving end of betrayal and denial and abandonment and, and violence himself. And, and he lived an adult life as a servant, just wearing himself thin, teaching and traveling to the point where his parents said, you got to stop, you're going to kill yourself. And, and he, and he, and he touched lepers and he, and he healed people who were, were dirty and he ate with tax collectors and sinners and, 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 and he humbled himself like this, even lower than just being a baby and a child. But then even lower than that, as a man, this is the low point. He, he submitted himself, though innocent and without sin, to a shameful criminal's execution and he took it. Could have called down angels. He could have just said, that's enough. And he didn't. He absorbed the, the full wrath of God for our sin and he died in our place and he was buried. That's how low God was willing to go to deal with our sin. And he had to become flesh in order to do that in a way that counted for us, didn't he? If he's gonna, if he's gonna pay the wages of sin, which is death, then he's gonna need to pay as one of us. Otherwise, it doesn't count for you, it doesn't count for me. We sing, not as frequently at Christmas, but we sang it a couple of weeks ago, uh, of the Father's love begotten, and we sing this. He was found in human fashion, death and sorrow here to know, that the race of Adam's children, doomed by law to endless woe, may not henceforth die and perish in the dreadful gulf below evermore and evermore. God was willing to be made low so that we wouldn't have to, to, to end up the recipients of his, his wrath and his separation. And his humility is his glory. The glory of God in the face of Christ is his humility in part. A couple of ways we, we could apply this. There's, there's an infinite number of ways that, that this reality that our creator is willing to humble himself ought to, uh, to, to bear fruit in our lives. But I just wanna direct you to maybe three things to consider. First and foremost, uh, it ought to draw us to God rather than cause us to run away from God. Why wouldn't this cause us to run to him rather than reject him? When we recognize the willingness of God to lower himself for our best interest, why would we not then trust that God? Why would we not recognize that it is wise for me to entrust my soul to that creator who's willing to do that? Second is a negative application. In other words, how we shouldn't respond to the condes condensation, ah, I did it again, <laughs> the condescension of God and Jesus. How shouldn't we respond? Well, we shouldn't respond like Peter did when Jesus got up from the table and began washing disciples' feet. Remember that? 
Share the Passover meal. Jesus wants to teach them something here, prepare them for what's about to take place at the cross. And he takes off his outer garment and he takes a towel and a basin of water and he starts going around the table and hand washing his disciples' filthy feet. And Peter sees it coming around the table. He knows where this is going. And he gets to Peter and Peter isn't gonna let his Lord condescend to him. He says, you will never wash my feet. No way is this happening. He pulls his feet up, you know, like this. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you can't have a part of me. If you're too proud to allow God to condescend and serve you, you can't have a part of him. That's the gospel. That's what's unexpected, I think, about the gospel and causes so many, I think, to just say this can't be the way. On one hand, we love the idea of just cheap grace. God just forgives anyone, no matter what, because that's just what he's like. He's just the big grandpa that loves everyone, and here, here's candy. But actually, I think probably more of us have a problem with truly receiving the humble, one-directed service of God toward us that we can't ever pay back. And Peter, at first, that was his reaction. No, 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 you can't wash my feet. And Jesus says, no, if if you're too proud for me to wash your feet, then you're gonna be too proud to receive uh, me giving my life as a ransom for you and fully paying the wrath of God in your place. And it's like the light kind of goes on for Peter. He overreacts, right? He says, well, then wash all of me. And he's like, no, 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 I'm just gonna get your feet. But (laughs) but, but he says, no, 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 but but this is the way it works. You can't out-condescend God. Try to do that, and you actually can't have a part with him. Receiving what God, Jesus has done for you requires the humility to let God out humble you, serve you. Third, this ought to humble us before one another, shouldn't it? Man, I just think thinking about the incarnation and Jesus humbling himself, not just for me, but for those people I find it hardest to humble myself toward, it's like the spoonful of sugar, right? That just makes, should make that pride go down. You may be able to swallow my pride and actually serve someone and humble myself before someone who it's hard for. When I stop and think, you know, my Lord humbled himself for that person. And I'm, I can't. Our eyes on the, when we see, that's the thing too, when we see the beauty of condescension in Jesus, I think it makes it more palatable and more desirous, doesn't it? For you, doesn't it make you want to humble yourself more? You see, that is beautiful. It makes you want to do that thing more, right? To be humble, because you recognize it's beautiful to humble oneself. You know, I was just thinking, you know, we're two and a half years in here at Grace Fullerton, but many of you came from Grace La Mirada with us as we planted, and some of us have known each other for quite some time, you know, and that honeymoon period of, hey, isn't this great? We love our church and we love one another. We've had enough time to do lots of stuff together, ministry together, grace groups together, all kinds of things where offenses could be, slights could be made, offenses, little grudges could be, you know, there, and we sort of, you know, don't think about them, and we just have Lord's Supper anyway. But over time, these things that can dissolve the unity, the bond of peace among us um, can build up. And if we're not growing in humility like our Lord Jesus, uh, then that's going to be our undoing as a church. And so we have to be praying, Lord, please help me, like Paul said in Philippians 2, to um, have that mind among ourselves that was in Christ Jesus. 
What relationships do you have that are in most need of you humbling yourself? And maybe this morning that's what you want to do is bring those relationships before God. Just confess it and say, Lord, it is really hard for me. Even now, my knee jerk is to say, no, I'm not going to humble myself and ask the Lord to do a softening work in your heart because you're aware of his willingness to get low. Second one, which I've left myself 10 minutes for, really seven. Here we go. His eagerness to be near us is also his glory. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, That's really just a literal word. He tabernacled or pitched his tent among us. When Jesus took on flesh and physically, bodily came to earth, what he was doing, he was, it was very similar to what God was doing early on in Israel with that tabernacle, right? He takes these descendants of Abraham who were in slavery in Egypt and he rescues them out and he brings them out and he's gonna take them into a land flowing with milk and honey that's gonna bless, he's gonna bless them. And on the way, he establishes a relationship with them uniquely as his people at Sinai. And he makes an agreement. And part of that agreement is how worship is gonna happen. He says, I want you to know, I want to be right in the center. I wanna dwell with you uniquely so that other nations say, who is this people who has a God so near that he, answers whenever they call on him. That was Deuteronomy 4. That's what I want to do. And he says, I want you to build this tent, this tabernacle, and I'm going to cause my glory to dwell there. And later, when you get into the land, you're going to build a temple, and I'm going to cause my glory to dwell there. It's going to be veiled from you. You can't have it unobstructed. Your sin will not allow that. But I want you to know I want to be near you, but something's got to happen in order for me to be as near as I want to be. And God's teaching Israel that. And so then God draws even nearer in Jesus. And John says, he comes and he, he in, in Christ, he pitched his tent among us. Bodily, Jesus comes and he, he's able to touch us and talk to us and embrace people and eat with them and heal them and listen to them and live with them. God comes even nearer than all that tabernacle temple stuff. But I want us to realize in Christ, the nearness of God, it's not as near as God intends to be. Even when Jesus bodily is with disciples and crowds, God wants to get nearer. Even in Jesus, his glory is still veiled, right? I don't know why it never hit me until this week. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Why did he use the word veiled in flesh? Jesus is veiled in flesh. He's pointing out what I think John is acknowledging here, that even in the incarnation, God's glory is still veiled in Christ. It's not completely unobstructed. You know what God's ultimate goal is? How near he wants to be to us? He wants to dwell in us. He wants his spirit to dwell in us. The Holy Spirit in us is better than Jesus just merely with us bodily. Sounds crazy, but that's the reality. And in order to do that, Jesus dies so that we can be declared righteous and holy in God's sight. And the end game isn't just Christ with us. Colossians 1 says, this is the mystery that's now been revealed. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, Galatians 4. He sends the spirit of his son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. That's how near God wants to be with you. He wants to dwell in you, change your heart from the inside That's how near God wants to be. So much so that Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 6 to Christians who seem to feel this license to just use their physical body for immoral purposes and and to be violent and and to sin. He says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? The Holy Spirit dwells in you. 
church. Do you recognize the glory of God and his eagerness to be near us, his desire to be known by us? Not because he's so needy, but because we are so needy and he wants us to know his nearness and enjoy it and be blessed by it. Does that make you wanna run to Jesus, believe in his name, receive him, that God's spirit might live in you? Two other things about this. I, I hope that, it, that it, it stirs prayerfulness in us. I think we, I, I'll just say, I, I am constantly inclined toward prayerlessness. It just, it seems to be the first thing to just slip from the, 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 the things that I feel like are most significant use of my time in a day, the most productive or the most worthy, worthwhile of my time. But, but prayerfulness ought to be uh, uh, encouraged by recognizing this is God's end goal, is that his spirit would dwell in us. We'd have real communion with him, real fellowship and relationship where we don't, where we feel confident, like Hebrews says, to come to his throne of grace now with all of our neediness and, and for mercy and grace and ask him for help. But even more than that, that we, we, we talk with him just as our heavenly father and we praise him and we give him thanks throughout the day as we recognize his goodness and blessing undeserved in our life. And we have, we, we just talk and commune with the father because he wants to be near us and he's dwelling inside us. It's to our shame that God wants to be this near to us and we actually have him this near to us and, and that isn't that big a deal often to us. We should be encouraged, drawn toward him. And, and, and last is this does have implications, I think, for the battle against sin in our life as Christians. That's what Paul said. He said, it's worthwhile to keep in the forefront of your mind, my body is where God's spirit dwells. And what, a, what an ugly thing for me to take this body that God cares about in whom his spirit dwells and to use it as an instrument, to just present it to sin and say, here, instrument for, for sin and, and ugliness. Paul says, that's just so wrong. God wants to sanctify you and your body. And that means what you do with your physical body and your mind and your speech and everything. James said, resist the devil, he'll flee from you, but draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I want us to take one minute here before we sing, close, uh, to draw near to God in prayer, to bow for a minute, talk to the Lord. Don't just rush out of here and say, God, what do I need to hear this morning? What are you saying to me? Um, what are you drawing my attention to? How are you showing me your glory? Um, pray silently for a moment, talk to the Lord, and then I'll close our time in prayer. God, thank you for this miracle of faith, giving eyes to see, eyes of our hearts to see your glory in Jesus. Um, to recognize um, in the very thing that the world sees as either weakness or foolishness of the gospel, that you help us recognize, no, that's glory. That's beauty and that's exactly what I need. And you draw us to yourself. Thank you, Lord, for that. Lord, I pray even this morning that might happen. If that needs to happen for any here um, this morning, you would, you would shine light into the darkness of hearts. Call people to yourself. Uh, Lord, I pray uh, that, Lord, having uh, seen your great humility, that it would make us a humble people ourselves, that you would just lay us low. Help us, Lord. It's, it's hard for us with our sin, our pride, to humble ourselves. It shouldn't be, but it is, Lord, and we ask you to help us, Lord. And I pray that our seeing your humility would help us get there more and more. Lord, I pray um, that... There might be fruit from, from this passage this morning in our lives of reconciling uh, uh, 
relationships and humbling ourselves with those we need to. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your nearness to us, even right now, that your spirit dwells in us. Thank you, uh, Lord, that, that, that even when we don't know how to pray and don't have words, your spirit that dwells within us knows, uh, translates that even to, to you, hears it, answers. We thank you for this nearness, Lord. Help us be a people who draw near to you and your throne because we know what a privilege it is and how good it is for us, Lord. Uh, I pray that this, this Friday, Christmas Day, as we celebrate with family, friends, and people, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be light because we're joyful and we're grateful and we're humble and we would be people who are ready to speak of this Jesus who lowered himself and drew near to us. Um, God, I pray for those this week that, that this, this holiday is a difficult time in some respects, a sad time, a heavy time. Uh, uh, Lord, I pray that you'd be our comfort this week, that you would uh, renew joy, uh, even in the midst of difficult things. Lord, uh, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.